My name is Hunter Long, and I serve as a student pastor here at First Baptist Powell. And this morning, I have the privilege of opening God's Word with you. So if you will, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And before we stand, before we stand um, and read this passage together, I do want to provide just a brief lay of the land. This won't take long. Uh, Since we are jumping in several chapters into the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, uh, a central theme in 2 Corinthians is the relationship between suffering and the power of the Spirit. Ultimately, uh, Paul desires that the people of Corinth would see that suffering is the means God uses to reveal his glory. And this is one facet of the Spirit's work, but and that's not primarily going to be our focus. What we're going to look at is the other side of that that Paul is presenting here in chapter 5, that the Spirit not only aids in our suffering, Paul argues, but fundamentally, it is the Spirit's, it is the Spirit's power which transforms us into the image of God, into the imago Dei, into God's likeness. Of course, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, male and females are created in God's image and his likeness, but this image becomes distorted, it becomes broken in Genesis 3, and so we see Christ in his coming, he restores this image to its, uh, at least restores it partially, we'll see a fulfillment of this in his second coming. But this transforming power and work of the Spirit is what we're going to be focusing our time intently on this morning. And so once you have your Bibles open there in Scripture, would you please stand together as we read God's Word together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, as he is carried along by the Spirit of God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who is through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity to come together to study your word. Lord, I pray that the words which come from my mouth are not mine, but they are yours. God, I pray that you would remove distractions so that we can focus intently on what it is you have to say to us this morning through your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight in these moments together. It's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. The text that is before us this morning deals heavily with the topic of reconciliation. That was perhaps a word you noticed repeated throughout this section and some variants of that word. We may, we may define reconciliation as the restoration of friendly relations. In our text, Paul speaks of reconciliation as a ministry, a ministry which has as its foundation or the means by which reconciliation occurs, is in the logos, is in the word, is in the message. Notice, God has entrusted to us the message, the word of reconciliation, which is reflection on John chapter 1, in which Jesus is the word of God. He is the foundation 
Paul's emphasis is that reconciliation, restoration between not only man's relationship with God, but also our relationship with others, it occurs through the gospel. It occurs through the word. It occurs through Jesus Christ. And so my goal for our time together this morning is to understand, as this text defines for us, the mandate that every Christian has in light of God's glorious grace in which he has sent his son, Jesus, to reconcile us to God, the mandate that every Christian has from God to engage in the ministry of reconciliation, to proclaim the message, the person, the logos of reconciliation, thereby functioning as an ambassador for Christ through whom God is conveying his message. So, in order to accomplish this goal, there are three points, if you're taking notes this morning, in your fancy new notebooks, perhaps. I want us to consider three points this morning. Number one, the change. Number two, the call. And third, the confidence. The change, the call, and the confidence. So first, let's look together at the change. Look with me again at verse 17, where Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And of course, you've heard me say this, Dallas, and maybe you've heard others say it as well, that when we see a therefore, we need to figure out what it is therefore. Oh, I'm so proud of you all. What has Paul said that leads him to begin making this point in our text? And so context is important here. Paul has been expounding upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ throughout this letter, but really building upon it in chapter 4 with, maybe you have the subtitle in your Bible, the light of the gospel. And so just before our verse, he is built up to this glorious point in verse 14, which you can look there and see, where he says, for the love of Christ controls us, or some translations say compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live might no longer, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is speaking of the glorious truth of the gospel in which Jesus Christ has died for all. He has taken the weight and the penalty of sin upon himself. He has died in our place so that we can have Life. And it's interesting to note that the life which we receive, the life that is to be lived, is not for ourselves, but to be lived for Him, it's to be lived for Jesus. It's in light of this glorious truth that Paul then says in verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The culture in which we live today, and certainly has been this way for quite some time, after all, there is nothing new under the sun. The devil just continues to repackage the same old things. The culture in which we live today shouts loudly to live for yourself. You're number one. Please satisfy your desires. Gratify your desires. Whatever you may feel, go out there, do that. Your truth is your truth, after all. Yet the gospel calls us to something entirely different. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is clear that a life lived in pursuit of self is a life that leads to a quick end. A life that is lived in pursuit of self is a life that is leading to a quick 
in. But the life of sacrifice, the life of submission is one that truly leads to life. For many years, I've strived to find satisfaction in the things of the world. And to be frank, I'm so guilty of leaning into that death-speaking whisper, an enticing whisper which says something along these lines, temporary satisfaction will satisfy eternally. However, I've learned, and certainly you all have learned this by God's grace as well, that no matter how many sips or how many clicks or how many lights or how many lies, nothing ever satisfied until the gospel fell upon your ears. The good news, dear friends, is that at my worst, at your worst, Jesus Christ has reconciled me to himself, you to himself, so that we can truly have life. Not because of any foreseen merit or do-goodness that was in me, that was in you. It was all because of the abounding grace. And sinners like me and sinners like us can be brought into right relationship with God by means of his son's precious blood. This saving work of Christ has propelled us, compelled us into being something better, something greater to live as a new creation, as a testimony of God's Power, brother and sister, you have been saved not to live as you've always lived, but to be a transformed testimony of the power of God. If God were to save and we were to remain as we always were, this would indeed be a bankrupt gospel. It would be empty. A gospel that doesn't change your life hasn't saved you, nor is it saving you. Yet Paul makes it clear that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Notice with me both the inclusive and exclusive nature of this call of therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone, inclusive, regardless of size, education, economic status, career, political affiliation, anyone can receive this, but exclusive only by means of being in Christ. Can one be a new creation? This is why Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except, well, all these different ways. That'll work out for you. No, through me, through Jesus. It's both inclusive and exclusive. And this transformation isn't just simply turning over a new leaf. It's not getting your act together. No, this is a complete reworking of who we are because our affections have changed, because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Because of Christ's saving work, Scripture says that the old has passed away, and behold, for the new has come. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus to, in light of the gospel, put off their old selves as well. He writes, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, living for how we feel, maybe. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God. There is that Imago Day again. And true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians 3, Paul makes clear what some of these old ways, or the old man is. He says, the old ways are these, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, and slander. I believe that in our culture at large, and we may narrow the scope a little bit, culture at large, but I believe also in this room this morning, there are three positions, three stances 
to our relationship with the old man or the old ways. First, you may be one who views getting rid of sinful things as your way to get to God. In other words, rather than surrendering to Christ's completed work on the cross, you are attempting to earn your way to heaven by getting rid of bad things. Dear friend, if this is you, I implore you to surrender to Christ's all-sufficient work in which he has broken any need for earning your way, as if it can be earned. James 2.10 tells us that if we break one letter of the law, we are guilty of all of it. And I'm willing to bet that each and every person in this room is made out of the same stuff as me. And you're not perfect. You fail. We often try to dig ourselves out of situations, but we end up digging a deeper hole, don't we? Maybe that we trust in the sufficient work of Jesus. The Spirit writes in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And in case, you weren't, in case it wasn't clear, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The thing about gifts is it's not something you have earned to receive. It is something that is out of the generosity of the giver. The gift has been given, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because at the end of the day, indeed, doesn't God get the glory for salvation? May we continually be reminded that Christianity, at its root, is all about what God has done for us, not what we have done for God. After all, we love because he first loved us. Second, as a believer, second, the position you may be in in relationship to your old ways, I jumped the gun a little bit there, is you may be a believer. This is your position in relationship to the old man. You are a believer who is waging war day in and day out with the sinful things in your life. You, as Paul writes in Colossians 3, are seeking the things that are above where Christ is. In other words, you are setting your mind on the things of God. Although you are not perfect and you never will be, you strive to be like Christ. You strive to hate sin as God hates it and to become more like Christ. You wage war with the flesh day in and day out. And I'm willing to bet that is the position of most people in this room. You are a believer who, by God's grace, is being sustained by the Spirit, who is saving you, who's putting to death the things of old and putting on the things of Christ. But the third position, the third place, relationship to the old man, old ways, may be this. Your approach to sinful ways is that sin doesn't really matter. What's the big deal? Who is God to say what I can and can't do? And maybe for you, this is where you're at. You don't claim to be a follower of Christ. But I also think, just because of where we are in East Tennessee and cultural Christianity is everywhere, I think there also could be some in this room who hold this view that sin doesn't really matter while maintaining to be a Christian, as if they can be syncretistic, as if they could work together. Now, for the non-Christian, at least they're being consistent. Of course, for the non-Christian, you would hold a view that sin doesn't really matter because you are not a new creation. It would be ridiculous for me to expect a blind person to guide their way through a new home. Likewise, it would be foolish for me to expect a non-Christian to live a new life in Christ. This is fair. It is logical. However, it is unfair. It is illogical for a Christian to live in sin as if there is nothing wrong with it. This is what leads John to write in 1 John 1.6 that if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice 
the truth. For many years, this is what my Christian life looked like. Saying that I knew Christ, that I have tasted and seen his goodness, yet I had no desire to live for the one who has redeemed me. No desire to put to death the things of the old. Christianity was more of a mask that I wore. Growing up, I loved performing arts. I loved being in musicals and things. That's a nerdy side of me that you all need to know. I love doing that sort of thing. I did everything from being Frank Sinatra and Guys and Dolls to being a giraffe in a production of Adam and Eve. Quite the uh, actor range that I played growing up was a role of a Christian. Wearing a mask is terribly convenient for me because I could put it on in church settings because I could play the role well. I could recite the gospel. I grew up in church. I could recite the gospel. I could quote John 3.16. I went on mission trips I cried at church camps. I renewed my vows to Christ every year at church camps. What is terribly convenient about a mask is that you can put it on and take it off whenever you want. And is when the mask is removed, the stage lights are off and the curtain closes that your true character is revealed. This former UCLA basketball coach, John Wooden, once said, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. We can fool people all day. Not to speak down on anyone, but people are easy to fool. People are gullible. People are naive. The thing about fooling the God of the universe that you have a relationship with him, that doesn't slip by very well. It doesn't work too much in our favor. And what my true character revealed and what I learned was this, I did not know Jesus. For to know him is to love him and his Ways To know him is to abandon self in pursuit of him. To know him is to be a new creation. Albeit not perfect. None of us will see perfection on the side of heaven. If you do believe you're perfect, your spouse will give you a gentle nudge. We will wage and battle against sin. By the uh, sin against the flesh, by the Spirit's power. But our affections as new creations are altogether different. Perhaps the defining characteristic or the revealing factor of being a new creation in Christ is your disposition when it comes to sin. Do you hate sin as God hates it? Or to put in the words of a child, because my daughter is saying words like this all the time now, is sin more of a whoopsie to you than a divine offense against a holy God? A salvation which offers no transformation is no salvation at all, but what Christ has offered you this morning is true transformation in which your affections and your relationship to the works of the flesh transform dramatically. This morning, dear friend, if you do not know the Savior who has redeemed you from the wages of death that your sin will result in, I invite you to respond in faith to the goodness of the gospel in which Jesus Christ has died in your place and filled you with the Spirit, not so that you may remain as you always been, but so that you may become a new creation. Because of Christ, we have experienced a great and glorious change, haven't we? Second, let's turn our attention to the call. Looked at the change, and let's focus our time on the call. Look again with me at verses 18 through 20. Paul writes, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us 
the message, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Before getting into the call itself, Paul reminds us of two things, and these will serve really as subpoints for us before we get into the call itself. Paul reminds us of two things. Number one, as we've already discussed, being a new creation is something that comes from God, not ourselves. Paul says all of this salvation is from God. And we must be reminded that because of sin, we were dead. And if you are a dead man, there's not much you can do to revive yourself. And so it is necessary for God's grace to come from the outside to bring us to life from our sinful state. And this is why Jesus, in John 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he tells him that salvation comes from above through being born again. And this idea of salvation coming from the outside of oneself is so foreign and radical to the Jewish mind. To the Jews, salvation was earned through following tradition, ritualistic practices. It was salvation by obedience, yet what Christ brings in the new covenant is a salvation that is given to you freely so you may then in turn obey. No longer is it obey so you may be saved, but is you have been saved, so obey. Hear the beauty of the gospel, dear friend, as Paul presents it. God initiated the ministry. He reconciled you to himself. We did not reconcile ourselves to him. Second subpoint that Paul introduces before we get into the call is that God accomplished this reconciliation by means of his son, Jesus Christ. All this is from God, who through Christ, Paul says. There are some today, and I believe it's worth our time mentioning. I was going back and forth on this. I think it's important. There are some who believe or diminish Jesus' work to merely just being a good teacher or a good moral example. That's all Jesus was. Was he these things? Certainly. However, if he was only these things, then we are still lost in our sins. If he was not the Son of God, then he is not divine. And if not divine, he has no capacity to bear your sins, to to bear mine, to raise himself from the dead, let alone raise us from the dead as a part of his glorious promise. But praise be to God that Jesus is the Son of God. And Paul proclaims that on the cross, God and Christ worked together in reconciling the world. Prior to Jesus dying and the veil being torn and before Jesus cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place in which the Father set upon the Son all the guilt and wrath our sin deserved and Jesus bore it in himself perfectly, totally satisfying the justice of God for us. I'm debating on a tangent. I'll follow it just for a moment. Some critique and say that this was divine child abuse. That the God of the Old Testament, so angry, more like a toddler, doesn't know how to control his emotions, threw all his anger and his wrath on his son, and his son was just standing there, didn't know what to do. This wasn't a part of his plan, or this wasn't on his radar for something he would do. So this was divine child abuse. Yet how foolish it is for one to not consider the scriptures in which Jesus proclaimed he must die. Peter in Matthew's gospel attempted to dissuade Jesus, if you remember this, from pursuing his providential mission of going to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and be raised on the third day. And Peter, feeling awful bold as he usually does, 
tells Jesus Christ, after hearing these things, that he must go and suffer and, and die. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And how does Jesus respond? Does he respond saying, you're right, I believe, the God, I believe God is taking advantage of me. I must have lost my omniscience for a moment there. I didn't know what was happening. No, this isn't the case. Jesus responds with all authority under heaven and earth to Peter upon whom, upon his proclamation, the rock of the church is being built. He responds to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This doesn't sound like someone who's being abused. It sounds like someone who's very well, very well aware of his function, his purpose, what he has come to do. Matthew one twenty one, the angel announces Jesus is coming to save the people from their sins. Though on the cross, Jesus was being treated as if he were an enemy of God, he was not. Even as Jesus was punished as if he were a sinner, he performed the most holy service unto God the Father ever offered. And this is why Isaiah can write, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So it's in light of these truths that all this is from God, salvation from God, the centrality and the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Paul then moves into this call, this challenge, that we as believers who have experienced the transforming power of the gospel are given the distinct honor of being ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. This is mind-blowing, that those who are hostile in mind, those who are enemies of God, those who are far off have been brought near, and not only brought near, but sent out to go and preach the very message they were once against. We're given the distinct honor of being ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. There is a prominent idea in our culture today that our relationship with Christ is merely personal, not communal. And understandably, so many altar calls go something along these lines. I know that this is not my altar call, but they go something along Although this is certainly true, and I don't think at its root there's anything wrong with that. However, some have stretched that and extended it to see that the relationship with Christ is only personal. They don't need the church. They don't need others. They don't need to go and do anything. Who are you to judge my relationship with Jesus? For Paul, believing this is just as foolish as saying you're a Christian and not living as a new creation. There was no such thing in the mind of Paul in the early church of being a private Christian, but having responded to the saving faith in Jesus Christ, you, dear brother and sister, you were called to be ambassadors for Christ. And the foundation of our ambassadorship, the reason we should live, desire to live on mission for Christ as new creations is because of what Christ has done. This is why Paul builds it this way. See what Christ has done, now go and share, go and tell. John writes in 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Because of the surpassing love that I have been shown in Christ Jesus, I have been a witness to what true love looks like, and I've therefore been called to share this love with others. Now, as ambassadors, what does this love look like, sharing this love? Most would say that sharing the love of God is just doing nice things. And I would agree, nice things are really good. I enjoy nice things. But there are plenty of atheists, non-believers, who do nice things every day. For the Christian who has been called to be an ambassador to Christ, how does our love stand out? And it's, of course, no accident that the word ambassador is chosen to be the representation of what a believer is called to do 
After all, ambassadors are people who serve in a foreign land on behalf of their governing official, specifically the king. You see, an ambassador goes into foreign lands not to please his audience, but to please the king who sent him. An ambassador does not speak on his own authority, his own opinions or demands, for they mean very little. The ambassador says what he has been commissioned to say. But an ambassador is more than a messenger, right? He is also a representative, representing the honor and reputation of the country from which he has been sent. Our love, brothers and sisters, as ambassadors for Christ, is radically different than what the world offers because we serve a king who is radically different. Our charge, our message is to preach Christ and him crucified. And this message, if you've been a Christian for a short time, maybe you haven't experienced this, but if you've been a Christian for many years, certainly you have. This message isn't very pleasing to people. The gospel is raw. The gospel is offensive because it forces people to recognize their sin. Yet this message at the same time is so loving because it is the only message in the world which can bring dead souls to life in Christ. Are you as a new creation sharing the good news of the one who has redeemed your soul? Not only is this message, our message, different than the world, but as ambassadors, we represent our king, our Lord, in a foreign culture too. We're working against the grain, as it were. The question my youth pastor always asks, and I believe it'll suffice for this point, that when people see you, do they see Jesus? Do they see someone who is representing the kingdom of God well? Of course, we're going to fall short. We are going to. I fall short at this every day. But in our falling short, do we have the humility to say, I did not represent my king well? Please forgive me. Third and finally, let's look at the confidence. And this will just be a brief point for us. Summarize what we have looked at thus far. Look with me at verse 21 as we conclude our time together with the confidence. Paul writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is known as the divine exchange in which Jesus Christ who is God's holy and beloved son, took on becoming sin for us, dying the death that we deserve so that we can have life and become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, sinners who deserve death have received the free gift of grace. Instead of dying for their sins, we receive the righteousness of Christ, all prompted by God's love for us. And this divine exchange indeed gives us great confidence as new creations that God will not forsake us or abandon us because he has called us, he has chosen us, he has redeemed us, he is the one who secures the inheritance on our behalf. This gives us great confidence. Hear the words of Peter in 1 Peter, that we have given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, that is kept in heaven for you by your own strength, by your own power, no, by God's power. You have received an inheritance. What a glorious promise that is for us that no matter what trial, what suffering, what rejection comes our ways, we have been made right with God. And so may it be. To close with the words of Charles Spurgeon who said of this passage in one of his many sermons, he says, the work of reconciliation he committed to his son who has accomplished it for us on our behalf. But the word of reconciliation he has committed to us. Hear that. The work of reconciliation, Christ has accomplished. You don't have to do the work. Christ has done that for you. 
But what you've been given the responsibility to do is to go and share the word, the message. He goes on to say, it is our high privilege to tell the tidings of the wondrous work by which God is reconciled so that without any violation of his justice, he can have mercy upon those who have offended against him. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity we have to come together to study your word. Lord, I'm thankful as this, and this time of study has caused me to reflect on the wondrous work of salvation that you have given me, that you have freely given to all people in this room. Lord, I'm thankful. This is not anything I've done. There is no boast that I can offer, but all praise and honor and glory are given to you and you alone for salvation. So Lord, I pray that Lord, if there's someone in this room who does not know you as their savior, they fall in one of those negative positions in the relationship to the old man, the old ways. Lord, would you by your spirit awaken a dead soul to life in Christ. And Lord, for those who are believers, as are many in this room, would you embolden us by the power of your spirit to go and be ministers of reconciliation, to go and preach the good news that we have been reconciled to God, not because of anything we have done, but because of God's grace. And Lord, would you give us confidence that for those whom you have called, you will justify. And those whom you've justified, you will indeed glorify. Pray all this in your son's precious and holy name.